all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Good morning. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MTV Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Today we're going to be talking about breastfeeding. August is National Breastfeeding Month, and so we're going to talk about that today. And I've got a special guest joining me. I have Leanne Murray. She is a family nurse practitioner and also a certified lactation counselor at Hancock Women's Center. And we're here to take your questions or comments today. Uh, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can always email us even when we are not on the air. It's a great way to get your questions in to us. That address is fit at mpbonline.org. You can always go over to Facebook to Healthy Habits with Josie and interact with me there. There is a pretty um, robust conversation going over on Facebook today um, to the question that I asked. Um, that says, what's one thing you wish you knew about breastfeeding before you had your baby? And so if you have a question or comment about that, we would love to hear from you today. Good morning, Leanne. Can you hear me? Good morning. I can hear you. Can you hear me okay? I can. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's start a little bit about, first of all, where is Hancock Women's Center? Uh, we are located in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, on the Gulf Fantastic. Coast. Fantastic. So I love being able to feature folks from kind of all around the state, so not just here in the metro area. And tell me what a certified lactation counselor does. So we help moms uh, with breastfeeding. We, I teach moms about breastfeeding while they're pregnant, and then um, after baby's born, I see mom and baby back in clinic and make sure that everything's going well at that point. And then I usually help moms come up with a return-to-work plan, um, how they're going to plan their pumps and navigate life with a baby uh, in the workplace and, and all of that. So That's it's a lot of fun. That. I get to work with <laughs> the baby, yes. too, which is awesome. Absolutely, absolutely. How did you get started doing that? So before I became a nurse practitioner, I was a labor and delivery postpartum and nursery nurse for eight years. And we had a lactation, like an IBCLC, come and teach us um, an eight-hour breastfeeding class because the hospital that I was working at was becoming baby-friendly. 
and it was required that all nurses take this class. And so I became so passionate about it at that time, and that was before I had any children. And then once I had my first, I had um, some struggles in the beginning for the first month, and I had a lot of help from two very awesome IBCLCs in my life, and that inspired me to get my CLC um, at that time. And I was also in my last semester of nurse practitioner school, and so I went ahead and pursued that um, at the same time so I could help other moms uh, not, hopefully not struggle quite as much as I did for that first month. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned the term um, baby-friendly, and so I, I'm familiar with baby-friendly, but some of our listeners might not be familiar, and they're thinking, why wouldn't all hospitals be baby-friendly? What, what does that exactly mean? Well, they should be baby-friendly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so baby-friendly is, is exactly what it sounds like, the, and the goals are pretty simple. Um, they want to increase the exclusive breastfeeding rates in their community, they want to promote um, evidence-based practice such as skin-to-skin -skin after delivery, regardless of method of delivery, whether it be a vaginal delivery or a cesarean delivery. Um, and they want babies to room in with their moms 23 out of 24 hours of the day. And it kind of all just sounds like common sense, if you ask me, you know. So, um, and skin-to-skin is -skin, super important, regardless if you're going to breastfeed or not. Um, because it helps babies to transition better to life outside the womb. Before the hospital that I worked at became baby-friendly, we would take babies to the nursery, I mean, really just very quickly after delivery. And so, you know, imagine you just gave birth. You barely got to see your baby. Your baby goes to this loud, bright, cold room and is away from their mom. And then... Um, then you bring them back an hour later, two hours later, and then try and get mom to, to breastfeed. And you kind of missed an important window at that time. Right. So the breast, uh, the skin-to-skin -skin part is so important um, because babies transition better when they are on top of their mom and they are hearing the same heartbeat that they've heard for the past nine months. And um, she smells familiar and... Um, the other great thing about doing skin-to-skin -skin is that um, women have, um, we have lots of superpowers, but one is that our breasts have the ability to thermoregulate. So there's a fun saying that they're not hooters, they're heaters. Um, and so that means that our bodies can warm and cool baby automatically regardless of, you know, like what, what the need is at that time. Um, and men's breasts cannot do that. So uh, not to discourage men from doing skin-to-skin, -skin, but they should only do it for about an hour or so because uh, they could actually overheat babies. So um, but that, that's just a little tidbit of why skin-to-skin -skin is so important. Well, I did, I, you taught me something today because I did not know that. So I'm, I'm feeling smarter today as well. But another thing I want to, to kind of – circle back around you because you mentioned you had had trouble um, breastfeeding when you had your first child and I did as well um, and so you know when I think back to before I had kids if there was kind of one thing that I wish that I knew was that it it's not like in the movies you know it's not where baby's just suddenly going to latch on and everything's going to go perfect and you know they they eat and drain your breast every time they eat and you know all of these different kinds of things there, you know, it, it, it takes work uh, to get get in a rhythm and a routine with baby and, and to get everything, you know, really working the way it should be working. 
And, you know, I think a lot of times we don't do a great job of letting moms know that you may you may have some struggles, but that there are resources available to help you uh, kind of overcome some of those struggles. If that's what you're, you know, if that's part of your plan, what you're wanting to do for you and the baby, right? Absolutely. So I know for me, um, and a lot of the folks actually that are that have commented on our Facebook today, and that's at Healthy Habits with Josie, if you want to drop your comment there, um, is about uh, not making enough milk. So lots and lots of comments have come through um, saying they wish they had known that not everybody produces a sufficient amount of milk. Um, and so let's talk about how do you know if, you're making enough milk for your baby, especially if you're kind of exclusively breastfeeding and not pumping and, you know, putting it in a bottle and just, you know, just breastfeeding. How do you know if baby's getting enough? And that's a question I probably get five times a day at least. Because <laughs> uh, so, everybody wants to know, wants to know, you know, everybody's so scared when you've got this little tiny yeah. human. You want to make sure you're doing things right. Exactly. And, you know, a, a lot of us come from from um, families that haven't breastfed in quite some time. And so we are um, trusting the process and hoping that we're doing everything properly. But there are some really great things that I teach my patients um, on how to gauge if your baby is getting enough breast milk. So the first thing is... Um, you know, we look at uh, diaper output. So as long as baby's having one wet and one dirty diaper per day of life until our volume milk comes in, which is usually days two through five, as long as baby's having one wet and one dirty diaper per day of life, that is a great indicator that breastfeeding is going well. Um, so the first 24 hours, we need one wet and one dirty. The second 24 hours, two wets, two dirties. Everything is looking great at that, at that time. Another indicator that everything is going well is when baby stool transitions. So as our milk changes to volume milk, baby stool also changes. When babies are first born, their first poop that they've been working on since about 20 weeks gestation is called meconium. And it's the black tarry poop for anybody who's had babies. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then yeah. as our milk changes, it becomes a green color. And then once our milk is in, um, our volume milk is in at full force, baby's poop transitions to a yellow, seedy, loose, breastfed baby poop. That is another indicator that everything is going well and that baby's getting enough milk. The third indicator is weight. So they weigh baby whenever, whenever baby is born, and then they typically do weights every 24 hours at the hospital. Depending on the type of birth and where you gave birth at and what the policy is at your, at your facility, Babies, if you had a normal vaginal delivery and you guys are doing good, sometimes they let babies go home, you know, within 24 hours or, mm -hmm. you know, a day after delivery. Um, so the discharge weight used to be a really good indicator of, you know, where we were, um, where we were going to be at, but a lot of times babies are being discharged earlier now. Um, so the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends a follow-up weight check for baby 48 to 72 hours after discharge. This is super important, and this is something that was not required or recommended whenever I had my first, and I feel like if I had had that weight check, um, things would have gone a little differently for me um, at that time. But I can't stress the importance of that visit because, that's a, first of all, it's a good time. If you have any concerns, that you know, it's a, a great time to ask for help. 
sometimes if you're not seeing a provider for one to two weeks after delivery, it might be too far gone to help mm-hmm. salvage your supply. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, my youngest child is 10, and so that wasn't a thing either. Even when I had my last baby, the, the, that kind of two- to three-day post-discharge weight check was not standard. We, or it wasn't here, you know, we um, had, you went to see your pediatrician in two weeks um, after delivery. And, exactly. you know, luckily I had, you know, breastfed my first child. And so I, you know, I felt like I, I knew some of the things that I didn't know when I had him. But, um, you know, two weeks is a long time uh, if you, especially if it's your first baby. So I agree that that kind of 48 to 72 hour um, weigh in is more than just a weigh in. You know, now is the time to ask any, um, you know, if you have any problems, if you're having problems breastfeeding, or if you have any questions or concerns about that you know, ask at that visit um, and see if someone can, can pop in and help you figure out some of those things Absolutely. there. And making um, sure that right. we have a, a, a provider that is um, breastfeeding friendly also makes a big mm-hmm. difference because um, sometimes, you know, they, you might just get somebody that might, you know, might not grasp what the concept is of normal weight gain for breastfed babies and things mm-hmm. like that. So making sure you have that right provider makes a big difference to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple other things that you mentioned um, is that change in poop. Uh, and so if you have breastfed a baby or, you know, breastfed them um, pumped milk, you know exactly what Leanne is talking about. It is a, a um, mustardy colored kind of very, and when she says seedy, like, almost like a whole grain mustard kind of and has those yes. little, um, little seeds in it. And that's what a breastfed um, poop looks like, which looks a little bit different than um, a formula fed baby. Uh, and it's usually more frequent as well. Um, I know for mine, every time they breastfed, they also pooped. Uh, so yes. it, was a, it was a whole, it was a whole thing, you know, <laughs> it was a whole, a whole production uh, when you were doing that. And, you know, that's a, why it's really important if you've got a helper, um, you know, to, to be with you and help you out as well. Cause it's a lot taking care of these little ones when they're first, uh, first figuring things out in the world. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. And joining me today, I have Leanne Murray. She is also a nurse practitioner and a certified lactation counselor. And we're taking questions and comments today about breastfeeding. August is um, National Breastfeeding Month. And so it's a time to, to highlight 
the importance of breastfeeding, but also help moms work through some of the, the struggles that you may have, especially if you're a first-time mom. And it doesn't always mean that if it went smoothly the first time, you might not have some issues um, the second go around. Um, if you have a question or a comment for us, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also email us fit at mpbonline.org or go over to Facebook. We've got a pretty vibrant conversation going on there, Healthy Habits with Josie, and drop us um, drop us a question or a comment. And I've had tons of comments coming in today that have to do with, with milk supply and sufficient milk. Um, this comment says not everyone produces a sufficient amount of milk. Um, we've got one that says take it one day at a time. I agree. Uh, and then someone who's mentioning um, that they didn't realize it could take so many days for your milk to come in. Um, they also mentioned that they didn't know cluster feedings were a thing. Had I known both of those things, I maybe wouldn't have felt so defeated and like I was starving my baby. Oh, Mama, my heart hurts for you there Aww. a little bit. I know, I know, I know how hard it is um, on this. So let's uh, let's take a step back. We you gave some great indications about you know looking for urine output and poop as kind of indicators that baby is is getting um, a sufficient amount as well as weight gain. Um, let's talk about sufficient production and milk coming in. So what does it mean when we say our milk um, has come in or my milk hasn't come in, so to speak? So so if around around 20 weeks or so is when we start to make colostrum so uh, some women who are pregnant might notice some leakage and you know around that time um, if you don't have that don't be discouraged it's not you know not everybody has that and that's baby's first milk colostrum and it's called liquid gold for multiple reasons it looks <laughs> like liquid gold it's thick and sticky um, and then it is truly liquid gold because it is packed full of um, antibodies and protein and calories and it is you know tailor-made for your baby um, and so it's it's such an important important uh, important first milk for baby to have so whenever um, baby is born and the placenta detaches from our body that tells our brain that we need to make volume of babies here so things start going and uh, changing and so um, some people's volume milk comes in with a bang and you wake up and you're engorged and there's milk everywhere and other people have a more gradual um, coming in of their volume milk and this typically happens days two through five and sometimes it can be delayed like if you had a cesarean there's some evidence to suggest it might take an extra day for our volume milk to come in um, if you've had a premature delivery that's another uh, you know, can, can cause us a little bit of a delay um, for our volume milk to come in. And then certain medications can hinder volume milk to come in as well um, that they may give you in the hospital. But they usually will talk to you about that before they give it to you. So don't worry, they're not giving you anything without you knowing about right. that. Um, but so that's, and you know, so I, I, hate, I hate to say like milk coming in because it's really our milk is just changing. So mm -hmm. I try to, you know, because it's very important that moms understand that there is milk um, when baby's first born. So it's just different. And colostrum is also a great, it's a, it's a natural laxative. That's why it helps to get that meconium out. Um, yeah. So and, and cluster feeding. Oh, sorry. No, you're fine. Go ahead. 
Oh, I was just you mentioned cluster feeding, and I feel like that's also such an important thing to talk about because so many moms don't realize that that is a 1,000% normal breastfeeding behavior, and that is um, a time where a lot of moms do get discouraged and want to throw in the towel or give babies some some formula. Um, so what cluster feeding is is typically happens around the 48-hour mark or the second night. And until that time, you've had this nice little baby that's just been nursing every few hours, everything's going swimmingly, and then this baby just wakes up and is, just wants to nurse. And you will feed baby, and then 30 minutes later, baby is ready to nurse again, and you are questioning everything. You're like, am I doing something wrong here? Um, but it is a totally normal breastfeeding behavior. And so babies do this. They do this on the second day of life. They also do this whenever they go through growth spurts or they're learning a new skill. If they learn how to roll over or if they're getting a tooth or they, you know, I mean, just a variety of reasons. So it doesn't just happen at day two. It happens throughout your breastfeeding experience. And so it's important to realize that that's a normal behavior. And every time it happens, you're going to question, wait, am I making enough milk? And every time you're going to question. But just remember, is your baby having good wets and dirties? You know, is your baby gaining weight appropriately? Those things. And those are those those things, you know, I have to use to calm myself down whenever I'm in that situation of cluster feeding um, and to kind of, you know, realize this is a totally normal breastfeeding behavior. Um, and so I don't beat yourselves up over this, moms, and that's definitely not the time. As long as all the other indicators, the output is good and all of that, um, don't throw in the towel. And, you know, if you don't want to supplement with formula, don't do that at that time. Yeah. And, you know, I remember being this mom and, and thinking, you know, well, I just fed him. Like, why, why is he up and wanting to eat again? You know, am I not making enough milk? You know, what, what is going on? And really, and it, it, it does happen at those predictable times, like you're talking about, you know, right around day, day two, you know, for my first baby, he was a preemie. And so he was in the NICU for five days. And so I didn't get, you know, as much of that with with him because of that. But with my second one, you know, he, um, he came on home with me. And so I didn't have that experience of kind of that, that cluster feed coming on about two to three days after, uh, after we were home. And I did, you know, worry about him that he wasn't getting enough, but he was, not he didn't act like anything was wrong right like he just wanted to be snuggled and held and and nursed and that was a special time uh, for us to be able to do that together and so again drawing back on that is he peeing is he pooping you know is he content um those those things are really important indicators and really they're just kind of helping that volume milk get here you know, the more they nurse, then, you know, the more some of that will, will come in. And I think another really important thing to remember is that babies' bellies are small. Like the amount of volume tiny. that they can hold in their belly so is much tiny. smaller than you than you think it is. And so, you know, when you are first starting, you know, when you, the, the first day or really 15 minutes after I delivered my oldest, and I said he was a preemie, he went to the NICU, they brought a, a breast pump in for me to start pumping um, for him. And I was discouraged because I got like a tablespoon or, you know, something out. And I thought, right. oh my gosh, this is not going to, what, what's going to happen? This is not enough to do anything for anybody. 
and they were super proud of that that tablespoon you know they they said this is absolutely exactly what's supposed to be happening you know and so it's important to kind of babies don't come with adult-sized bellies and so we have to adjust our, our thinking in terms of how much volume will actually go in their little bellies um, when they're when they're little like this and, and you know and Jeremy, so you brought up a super, a super good point about um, about a couple of a couple of things with what you just said so um, you know it's important that if for some reason like in your situation with a, a premature baby that if your baby can't nurse that it's really important that we um, we try to get a pump in within that one hour window after delivery. It's just so important for our supply in the future. Um, and then it's really important to remember to pump as often as a newborn baby would nurse, you know, every two to three hours because you want to maintain your milk supply via pump until baby is able to nurse. Um, and then another thing to remember too is because I had I had preemie twins for my second pregnancy. They were born at 28 weeks, um, and I I knew that this was normal, but it's still discouraging. Like you're saying, when you pump, you just get a small amount of colostrum out, and then um, you know I had to pump every two to three hours for a few days. Um, well, for, for a long time, but anyway, but yeah. <laughs> I pumped every two to three hours until my volume milk came in, and until my volume milk came in, I did not get anything in that breast pump, um, mm-hmm. and so it just goes to show babies are much better at getting colostrum out than a breast pump, and hand expression is another great technique um, that a lot of moms who um, have preemies or have to hand or have to express milk, um, that's a super good technique to help you know, get the most colostrum out that you can. Pumps just really aren't that great at getting colostrum out. They do a good job for volume milk, but, mm-hmm. um, and so Stanford University has a stellar video on hand expression. So if anybody's, you know, listening or has a baby in the NICU or you're pumping, hand expression might be something you could, you know, throw into your routine to kind of help yield a little more milk. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's not a skill that gets a lot of attention. Um, even in the hospital, uh, unless you're, you know, working directly with a, a lactation specialist, is that hand expression there. And it can be important because you, you're trying to drain all of those different ducts and the pump kind of just pulls in one direction. You know, so you okay. had to, uh, for for me, the lactation specialist helped me adjust kind of the direction that it, that the pump was placed and some of those kinds of things to try and help drain some of those different areas um, of the breast there. So I was lucky in, in getting the support I needed that way. Um, I have a couple of folks who have commented about mastitis, that they wish they had known about mastitis before they had had a baby. So what what is that? Doesn't sound good. I know what it is, but I had it. Um, what so is mastitis, mastitis is, uh, it's an infection of the breast. And it begins with, it can begin with a cracked nipple sometimes. That's a good way for bacteria to enter the breast. And we'll talk about how to avoid cracked nipples in a minute. Um, So a cracked nipple is a good way for the bacteria to get in. Um, Sometimes any change in your breastfeeding routine um, that causes, like, the milk to kind of get stuck in one place, like a clogged duct. So if you're not emptying your breast as often as you were previously, like, let's say baby starts magically sleeping a little longer, um, that's a good recipe for maybe a clogged duct. Um, and Or it's, it's sometimes, like, certain articles of clothing. I had one mom who had a nursing uh, tank top on, and she uh, left it up overnight, and where the line was, she got a clogged duct and then got mastitis. 
So the most important thing to do to prevent mastitis is to keep the milk moving um, if you want to breastfeed. So we want to try and nurse or pump often. Um, but essentially mastitis, you'll have like a clogged duct and it'll be kind of red and hard and it'll feel like a bruise almost. Um, and then you uh, will start to have fever and, and body aches and chills. And so that is mastitis. Um, and once it gets to that point, you need to make sure you see your provider because you need um, some antibiotics more than likely if you're having fever um, and a red, streaky, achy breast. And sometimes if it's left untreated, it can progress into a breast abscess, which can be a very um, bad problem to have, maybe requiring surgery. So it's really important that if you feel like you have mastitis, you get in. Some things that you can do at home if you have a clogged duct to prevent it from becoming a mastitis is lots of massage, lots of heat. Um, lecithin is a supplement that you can take if, if you don't have any contraindications to that. Um, that just kind of helps to make the milk a little less sticky. So if you're somebody who gets recurrent mastitis, that might be something you should look into. But nursing off and pumping often, heat, massage, um, trying hand expression in the shower, those are all good ways to get rid of a clot duct before it gets to the point of a mastitis. Now, if you if you have mastitis, right, should baby continue to nurse that side? Yes, absolutely. And a lot of urgent care that ERs tell patients not to, I think that they think that the baby can get infection through the breast milk. I'm like, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. Always continue to nurse um, um, or pump, whichever, you know, you're doing. Um, and baby can totally have the milk uh, while you have the infection and while you're on the antibiotics because they're going to put you on an antibiotic that's compatible with breastfeeding. Right, right, right. And I, when I had mastitis, I remember thinking, oh, he shouldn't nurse. And they've told me absolutely not. He should nurse on that side. Helps, like you said, baby is better at draining the breast than, than any pump um, is. And so it helps to get it unclogged. Um, the, the infection likely came from whatever bacteria was in his mouth to start with. And so go ahead and continue um, to do that. Now, before we take the next break, let's talk about the cracked nipples that kind of lead um, that often lead to the mastitis. How do we keep that from happening? So the most important thing that you should focus on at the very beginning is getting that latch down. Um, a good deep latch will prevent a cracked and bleeding nipple. I've nursed three kids. I've never had a cracked and bleeding nipple. Breastfeeding should not hurt. And so it makes me so sad whenever people think that it's a normal thing. Some discomfort maybe taking your breath away when baby latches. Those are all normal sensations. But if you're having pain that lasts throughout an entire feeding, something is not right. So the important thing to remember is that you're not nipple feeding, you are breastfeeding. So you want baby to get as much of that areola or the brown part um, of your nipple in their mouth. Um, you want their lips to be flanged out like a fish. And if you could see me, I'm flanging my lips out like a fish right now. You want be flanged out like a fish. You want um, baby to have like a nice little double chin going on, and it should feel like a gentle tug and pull sensation. Once again, like some discomfort or that taking your breath away, you know, maybe for a minute or two, but not if it's lasting longer than that, you need to get baby off your breast and ask for help at the hospital and get them to help get baby latched on better. 
Um, football hold is my favorite position for learning how to nurse them because baby has more um, control of their head, so they can tilt their head back to open up wider. You want it to look like they're taking a bite out of, like, a double cheeseburger. Their mouth needs to be open really big. And you always want to start nipple to nose and not nipple to mouth, so they have to reach up to, to get, you know, more of your breast in their mouth. And then you always want to do tummy to mummy where baby's tummy is facing your body regardless of the position you're nursing in. So that way their head is facing your body as well and they're not in an awkward position that could cause a bad latch. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MTV Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. Joining me today is Leanne Murray. She's a nurse practitioner and a certified lactation counselor. And we've been talking about breastfeeding today and some of the things that we wish we had known when we first started breastfeeding were things that folks have, have sent in to us. And we were talking about kind of preventing um, cracked nipples and mastitis before the break. Um, and I've had a couple of comments that have come in that kind of go along that same line of, of thinking. But if you have a question or a comment for us, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring So you mentioned um, that breastfeeding shouldn't really hurt, that sometimes there may be kind of a, a little weird sensation when it first starts. And this is actually a new mom um, who just messaged me. I know she just had her baby a couple weeks ago. And she said that she was just diagnosed with, Demer. So, tell me about that. I think it's like a, an anxiety that happens when you first start breastfeeding. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Um, so it is um, where you have like um, an anxiety or like um, kind of. It is just it's like a like a negative feeling um, whenever you have a letdown. Um, and so um, it can happen, it, it usually just lasts for like a few minutes with letdown, but it is, um, and it's, it's not, it's not um, a very common thing to have, but it certainly can happen. Yeah, and so I've, when she messaged me about it, I pulled it up and, and took a look through it because I had a very similar, I wouldn't call it anxiety, I just felt kind of nauseous almost 
when my kiddos would, would start to breastfeed and nobody said anything about it. I told people, but nobody said anything about it. And it looks like that we haven't really given it a name until, until pretty recently, but that kind of anxiety, panic, just an unpleasant sensation um, right when milk starts to let down. And the good news is it only lasts for a couple of minutes, like you said. And I think probably giving it a, a name and letting moms know that that's normal uh, is, or not necessarily normal, but can be part of their breastfeeding experience, probably yes. help somewhat with that so they don't think there's something wrong with them, you know. And it actually stands for yeah. dysphoric milk ejection reflex. Um, so dysphoric, you know, an uh, unpleasant sensation, uh, milk ejection reflex. So that that's an important thing to let moms know that they're not, you know, they're not losing their mind, that that is, is a thing. It is a thing. I've always had the nausea sensation with pumping. Um, and so for some of my moms who have this, you know, just like reassuring them that it's normal, like you're saying, and that, um, you know, sometimes we, we're thinking it's probably just the release of hormones at that time. Um, but, you know, trying to take your mind off of that. Um, so, you know, whenever you're nursing or pumping, trying to make it like an enjoyable experience. So maybe, um, you know, so if you're nursing baby, you're getting to do skin to skin and cuddle your baby, which is pretty enjoyable. Um, but you could also, you know, use that time to, uh, to do something for yourself. Like I would always try, oh, cause I, for the twins, I had to exclusively pump for a really long time. Um, so I would always try to uh, put some crust white strips on or read a book or do something that was just, you know, just for me and to make that time. So maybe in my brain I associated it, you know, with something pleasant and not mm -hmm. I have to pump again. Um, so sometimes doing those things can be helpful to kind of take your mind off of it. But um, And if it's really bad, sometimes, you know, um, it, it, we, you know, if it goes along with, like, a postpartum depression or something like that, you know, there's medicines or, or um, different kinds of behavioral therapy techniques we can do. Absolutely. Another thing that I don't think, and if anybody told me about it, I deleted it from my brain, was the kind of cramps that occur, like, you know, uterine cramps that occur when you're breastfeeding or pumping, especially kind of right after you've delivered, because that's helping your uterus kind of, clamp down, return back to, to normal size, but they can be pretty uncomfortable as well. Yes, and it can, I feel like it's, you know, for at least like a, a week or two, um, mm -hmm. I noticed, you know, I felt like with, in my experience, that's how long I, I was more aware of it, but, um, you know, definitely, you know, if we have a mama who um, is, is, you know, kind of bleeding a little heavily in that delivery period, the first thing we try and do is get that baby latched because it really mm -hmm. does make a difference in getting our uterus to kind of clamp down like you're talking about, so... Um, it is effective, but yes, be prepared for that. Like when you go to pump or nurse um, in the early days, those cramps can can kind of take your breath away as well. Yeah, I mean it's it's like very you know very strong period cramps or menstrual cramps is what I would um, kind of you know associate it with uh, the most common sensation, and I just wasn't prepared for it. You know, and so I think if I had been, you know, mentally prepared for it, then it wouldn't have taken me off guard as much um, when it happened because I immediately thought something was wrong. You know, like, oh, my gosh, why am I hurting so bad? You know, something something has to be going on. There's a lot so just, of things in the, you know, postpartum, in the postpartum world that nobody gets told about. 
and it's kind of, I just, you know, until you go through it, and then you're like, I wish I would have known this, and so, I mean, you should have a show on what to expect postpartum in general, because I feel like there's so much yes, stuff that nobody yes. tells you, you yes. know. Uh, I think sometimes we kind of have a little bit of amnesia about it, you know, because it all seems to go in a in a blur. You know, everything happens so quickly and you're so tired and, you know, all these things are happening. But there are important, you know, important things to, to pick up through there that you're not alone. And these sensations that you're having are, are very common among other uh, moms who have just delivered as well. I have a couple questions yeah. that came in and asked about um, nipple shields. What is a nipple shield? So a nipple shield is like a little um, like plastic silicone device, and we typically reserve them for moms who have flat or inverted nipples. And you should never use a nipple shield unless you're under the guidance of a lactation professional. Um, so sometimes moms do use them for sore nipples, um, but what will happen is, is first of all, babies kind of get hooked on them, and um, second of all, you're not fixing the issue. Like if the latch was not good and you're using a nipple shield, you know, you're not fixing the root problem. You're just kind of putting, you know, a Band-Aid on it. Um, but right. if it's in between that and not nursing until you can get to somebody, then by all means do it. So some women with flat or inverted nipples, we have to use it. Um, and it, the only thing we worry about with that is sometimes, you know, babies aren't able to transfer as much milk as they would without a shield, not all the time, but some of the time. So that's something that we worry about, that there might be milk left behind in the breast um, or that baby's not transferring enough milk, so they might not be gaining weight appropriately. So that's why you need to work with your lactation professional that you see um, to monitor baby's weight a little more closely and then, you know, try to get rid of the shield if possible. Another situation where shields are really helpful is with a preemie baby. Um, they need that palate strike, and so the shield helps with that. So I had to use shields once I was able to start nursing them about 35 weeks, and then we ditched the shield probably right at their due date. Um, so, it, it, you know, and then sometimes we uh, – you know, they can be hard to, to get rid of, but sometimes you can just do it gradually, like get baby latched and then remove the shield to kind of like trick them a little bit to get latched <laughs> on. And then because when they also, when they latch, it draws your nipple out. So it'll be easier for baby to latch once they've been on for a little bit. And then you can kind of take the shield away at that point. Um, we just kind of, it, they and they are hard to keep up with because they're really thin and flimsy, so and they're clear, um, so they get lost in the shuffle very easily. So um, we just kind of ditched ours whenever I I felt like I did a transfer weight, which is where you weigh baby before they nurse and then you weigh baby afterwards. And once I saw that they could take a full feeding without the shield, then we just ditched it all the way. Um, so you know, it it, it but it's. Just make sure that you're getting help with the nipple shield. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. 
From mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions, whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell. Here with me today is Leanne Murray, and we have been talking about breastfeeding today and some of the common common struggles that folks have when they're getting started on that and how to combat some of those and get over that hump. Before the break, uh, I had several comments about tongue tie and the impact of that on breastfeeding. And we have just a couple of minutes left, Leanne, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn you loose and let you talk about tongue tie. Okay, so a tongue tie is where the little thin piece of tissue that attaches your tongue to the floor of your mouth, which is called a frenulum, um, which is where it's short or tight in some babies. And sometimes it's really obvious, like when a baby opens their mouth, a pediatrician will catch it right away typically um, and recommend, you know, if breastfeeding is painful, then sometimes like a tongue tie revision um, or a release is necessary. And so it can be done with scissors. It can be done with a laser. You want to make sure that you use somebody who's experienced in doing these releases. Some signs of a tongue tie for mom would be painful nursing despite what appears to be a good latch. Poor latching, um, a clicking noise sometimes that babies make whenever they're nursing, um, or like poor weight gain and a baby who shouldn't have poor weight gain. Um, so they're really common and they're more recognized now. So a lot of times moms are getting help. Um, I think in Jackson, you guys have Dr. Glick, and she's supposed to be like the tongue-tie guru, so she's pretty awesome. Um, I have a lot of patients who have gone that way. Um, and so, and sometimes, though, tongue-ties, um, two of my kids had them, and we didn't do a release or, or a revision. They just, uh, one tore on its own, and then the other one never caused us any problems. So, um, but if it's just significant enough, it can cause problems with speech and feeding later in life. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had several folks on this post that I have going um, who have mentioned Dr. Glick by name as being a a lifesaver for them and getting them, you know, the help that they needed to be able to continue um, breastfeeding. So in the last kind of two minutes of the show, if if we're wanting to stop breastfeeding, if it's time, right, um, how do we do that safely to prevent kind of that engorgement and those kinds of things with moms? Very slowly, and nobody likes that answer, but it's the best <laughs> way. So um, you should drop. I I always tell patients to drop one pump per day, like one pump per day per week. So if you're pumping or nursing or whatever, um, you know, six to eight times a day because it's at the end. You know, let's say then I would drop one pump a day, and then a week later, you know, drop a second pump. So go from six pumps to five pumps. Or, or, you know, nursing sessions in a week. Right. 
Um, but just do it very gradually. And then whenever you're finished, you know, you want to just try to, like, it will be a little uncomfortable. You can hand express just a smidge for comfort, but you don't want to encourage, you know, any extra milk production at that point. So standing away from the shower, wearing a good sports bra, um, you know, things like that uh, can be very helpful. So just do it carefully or you could end up with a mastitis. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I fully embrace all the things that you said there. You really do have to go much slower than you think you're going to um, to, to get that. And for, for me, the, the nighttime or the middle of the night feeding was the one that was the hardest for baby to, to let yes. go of and for mom to let go of as well because everybody's tired and just kind of wants to do whatever they need to do to go back to sleep. Um, but, it, you know, it is important um, for, you know, for mom and baby uh, to be able to, to do it gradually and, and slowly so that it's not a shock to everybody's um, system there. And I'll second kind of that hand expression or just just expressing enough to, to relieve the tension but not draining the breast completely. Because if you drain that breast completely, it's going to think it needs to keep making a bunch of milk and we'll just keep right on yeah. doing that. So slow and steady wins the race there. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.